Hey everyone, and welcome to Mind Body Greens Beauty Podcast Clean Beauty School. I am your host and Mind Body Greens Beauty Director, Alexandra Engler. On this podcast, we explore beauty through the lens of well being. On today's episode, we have on beauty journalist and the co host of Fat Mascara, Jen Sullivan. So, Jen is actually my former boss. We worked together at Mary Claire. And fun fact Fat Mascara's other co host, Jessica Matlin, was my boss at Harper's Bazaar. So, I have a special place in my heart for Fat Mascara. They are the best beauty podcast around. And yes, I say that as a host of a beauty podcast. But compliments aside, Jen is a great guest to have on because she just loves getting into the nuances of it. She isn't afraid to question your beliefs, to question her own beliefs, and really weigh the facts. Anyway, I won't belabor the point any longer. Jen, welcome. Hi, Alex Angler. Hi. I'm so excited to have this conversation today. Obviously, you and I go way back. And so to be able to touch base with you on everything beauty is so exciting for me. And to just catch up with you and let our audience get to know you a little bit better. Obviously, you have your own podcast, Fat Mascara. So I know some of our listeners, there's some overlap here. So I am sure some of people know who you are. But for those who don't, I would just love to let everybody get to know you a little bit better. You know, what was your journey into the beauty industry? Well, thanks for having me. And I love talking to other podcasters because this is the fun stuff where you can really do journalism without getting edited. That's what I like to think of podcasting. But (laughs) yeah, so I'm a beauty journalist. I'm sometimes going into other types of journalism these days. But I started out working at Sephora, actually, in beauty retail and marketing when Sephora launched its website. Think about that. How long ago was that? <laughs> and they came over from France with their French ways and their black gloves and everything, and they needed to Americanize it. And so I was the very lowly assistant on the team that helped start Sephora.com. And from there, I was like, oh my gosh, journalism's amazing. I want to go that route, not the marketing route. And I worked at a local magazine in Philadelphia. And then a lot of time at Cosmo Girl. I worked at the teen magazine Cosmo Girl in the aughts and since then cycled through a bunch of publications I had worked at and usually as a beauty or beauty and fashion editor, ending my like legacy journalism magazine career at Mary Claire where you used to work as the beauty director. But while I was at Mary Claire, I launched this podcast, Fat Mascara, on the side thinking, you know, the way people were getting their information was changing. And I felt like print pages sometimes didn't have room for all of the nuance. And I love nuance. Like yes, I, you do. <laughs> I can, I'm the least black and white person, you know, I can always see the other person's side of the story. And in beauty, it's really become that kind of polarity as far as like decisions that you make. And I could not pick a side. So I was, you know, where can I have these conversations if not in the pages of a uh, print magazine that's supported by like the traditional kind of advertising that led to traditional kind of service journalism. And so podcasting was a way to like get into the weeds a little. Yeah. I mean, you were one of the first beauty podcasts. Back when podcasts were, yes, becoming a part of the zeitgeist, but they are certainly not what they are now. What what was that like starting a beauty podcast and how has the landscape changed? 
as far as beauty podcasting, it's changed in that there's so many more people at the party, which is great. I remember like the first two years, this we started working on this in 2015, my co-host Jessica Matlin and I, every single guest we had, we had to first explain what a podcast was. Like I remember <laughs> Bobby Brown had her own podcast at some point in like 2018 or 19, but when she came on our show, it was like first this whole like, wait, what is this? Where is it going to live? Who's going to listen to it? So it's really nice that people understand what podcasting is now. And there's more voices that said it's like harder. It's not like YouTube or something where the video algorithm or the Instagram algorithm or TikTok will tell you something else you're interested interested in. With podcasting, you have to seek out the podcast. So it's not like, oh, I subscribe to Fat Mascara. What else might I like? And it'll come up in my feed. There's no podcasting feed. And the good thing about that is like, we're not beholden to this algorithm of echo chamber of information. Sure. But the bad thing is sometimes the audiences aren't as big, but I like that because you can, you have the freedom to really have good conversations and really learn. And so I love what's been happening in the podcasting space. Well, getting into the nuance and getting into the nitty gritty, I know is something that you obviously specialize in. I know that from your writing. I, I know that from listening to you. I know that from just like chatting with you. And I'm so excited to talk about, you know, the nuance and how you approach that sort of stuff. There was a lore piece, which I read, and that's actually, you know, why I reached out and wanted to have you on. Obviously, I'd been thinking about having you on for a while, but this was the, you know, the spark that said, all right, send in the email. But, you know, it was a piece that talked about natural versus synthetic and how there's kind of this false dichotomy there. And I'm curious, when you approached that story, how did you navigate talking about these big concepts in beauty? that are so full of gray areas. Like what, when you walk into a topic that you know you're going to write a feature on and you know it's complicated, you know, like how do you even start digesting that information? What's funny is it wasn't complicated when I first got the assignment. It was, what are the new natural ingredients that we should be looking out for? And of course, I was the one to complicate it. I was like, we need to back up a little bit. Like, sure, I could tell you the things that people are adding into formulas just so that it's buzzy, like acai or whatever it is, you know what I mean? And call that the new natural, the way I used to do journalism 15 years ago when life was simple. But I was like, let's look, take a bigger look at like, why do we care if it's natural or not? And do we even need that? And that's where we got into the nuance of it all. And the reason being that the experts I was talking to, I was talking to a lot of cosmetic chemists rather than dermatologists, because it was a story about ingredients. And to me, I love interviewing somebody with a medical degree about the human situation and medical things. But when it comes to formulation, they don't learn that in medical school. And unless it's a dermatologist that seeks out that information, they're not going to know the latest. Whereas cosmetic formulators, you know, they're talking to raw material suppliers all the time. You know, they see how stuff performs in vivo, in vitro, like on skin. So like, those are the people to talk to. And they just kept asking me as I was doing my research, wait, why are you only interested in naturals? Because to them, that was the least interesting thing that was going on. They had plenty yeah. of ingredients with really great safety data that just didn't fall into my like paradigm of like, is it botanically based? And they're like, well, it could be, but we make ours in the lab because it's more controlled and it's more sustainable. That was the thing that it came down to for me was like, I think a lot of people safety aside, think natural and eco-friendly, right? And so if that's what your reasoning is for going that route, you really do have to go ingredient by ingredient because like rose oil 
ain't that eco-friendly. Have you ever seen, I mean, you probably have seen knowing you, like what it takes to get a drop of rose essential oil. Gallons and gallons and gallons. Whether that's used for a fragrance, fine. And, or, I mean, I don't think there's great science on rose essential oil as a topical treatment, but like, yeah, yeah, it could have some antioxidant effect. But again, there could be a lab created which I've taken to calling, by the way, instead of synthetic, just because synthetic sounds so it's a negative connotation. I've taken to calling them lab created. <laughs> I, I love that. that. I think better. it is, you know, I think it is a good switch in language there, just because synthetic has become so wrongly villainized, mind you. You know, synthetic is good. There are reasons that we should be using synthetic ingredients. And on some level, and you mentioned this, all everything we put on our skin is some version of synthetic. You know, nothing can just be taken from a plant and put in directly in your face unless all you do is DIY, but none of us live like that. Yeah. And, you know, I loved that, how you approached that in this piece. So I want to ask, follow up on that. You know, when, when you explain these very dense chemistry, heavy concepts to the beauty consumer, and it gets into this idea that everything has to be manipulated in a lab on some level, you know, like, where do you draw the line of saying, okay, this is perhaps like too complicated, too chemistry heavy versus let's lighten this up. You know, I'm just, I'm curious about how you navigate getting too much into the weeds and the chemistry because you can get too in the weeds with chemistry. 100%. And people either the science gets too complicated. That's not even understandable, or you've lost, you've lost the, the subject completely. Like you're off in the weeds and nobody. And so I get what marketers are doing. It's funny because in journalism, it's one way. And I worked on the back end of like a skincare launch. And I finally saw the issue as to, I was always like, why are these marketers dumbing this down to this one tagline and making it all about X and trying to sell it to us? Because like, they're trying to please the broadest group of people and that, and it gets, you simple, it ends up getting simplified. So for me, I just like to think of, you know, where is the science education? What have we learned? Because I think a lot of people stop, they think about their body and their skin in the way they learned in high school anatomy class. And concepts that make a lot of sense, you know, like detoxing, it kind of makes sense to people. It's like dirty chemical particles get in my pores and I need to wash them out. That feels very simple and easy to understand two plus two is four. But if you really get into how skin works, like that is way too simple to explain it. But I understand why sometimes those concepts take off online and things because they're easy to understand. So for me, it's balancing like, okay, it's complex science, but let me see if I could explain this well. Like I made a joke about fermentation, like fermentation never would have even entered the beauty conversation 20 years ago. It just wouldn't have because people are grossed out by little microbes. But like, We've evolved, right? We've all learned about our microbiome and fermentation and foods that are fermented as like the United States gets more culturally diverse. We're understanding more like fermented foods, which weren't like, you know, what, sauerkraut? Like you didn't even know that was fermented. And so as people become comfortable with these concepts outside of beauty, that's when I feel like, okay, now we can have the conversation inside of beauty. So whether that's, you know, packaging, because we learned about it through our kids' baby bottles that we didn't want to have BPA but now let's talk in beauty. Like I feel like a lot of these concepts have to enter 
the the zeitgeist outside of beauty before we can bring them into beauty and talk about them that way. So when it's reached like, okay, not my mom, she's a bad example, but I'm trying to think of like a friend who's not in the beauty world. Like, do you know what a peptide is? Like, if you know what a peptide is or at least heard of it, then we can go into this conversation when I'm doing this article. But if it's a concept like, I don't know, like an endorphin inducing neurocosmetic, like I'm not going to go there yet. Like the the world science has not just entered the mainstream enough that the beauty science can go there. Even though you and I, and maybe the guy who made, excuse me, the girl who made that formula would know what it is. Like people yeah. just want to look good sometimes and yeah. feel good. <laughs> yeah. No, like it I should mean, be I- homework to figure out which moisturizer to put on, you know? 1000%. And I feel like that's something that I have been trying to get across a, a lot more lately is that People sitting at home who have jobs and families and responsibilities outside of the beauty industry, they shouldn't have to be chemists to be able to figure out what they're putting on their skin. Like, it's okay that we simplify this stuff and it's okay that we make it easy for people to understand, you know? Yeah. I think that ink, that inky list needs an overhaul though, because I, the minute you start putting chemical names, like people got into it a little bit. And then that became the movement of, if I can't understand it on the ingredient list, I don't want it on my body. When, you know, glycerin, you can make that from a plant and glycerin's a great moisturizer, but it looks chemically when you see it spelled out as opposed to, you know, safflower oil or whatever it is, when one is definitely a better hydrator and emollient. So I like... I struggle with that as well because I want people to do their homework, but I also feel like if you only do a little bit of homework, you might end up confusing yourself. Like you heard this was bad or whatever. That's where you like pick and choose your science and Mm. which ingredients. And then we come up with these no-no lists and we fight over the no-no list when we can all agree triclosan is horrible. Like nobody wants to put triclosan in your products. Then again, not many. I haven't seen a product with triclosan in years. So like- There's certain ingredients that are known and then you get into like, you have to, again, do like a chemistry degree to figure out which ones, you know, what your personal no-no list is, which is hard. Yeah. And a lot of times too, just to kind of go off on this ingredient tangent is a lot of times people will avoid ingredients or they choose to avoid ingredients and it has nothing to do with safety. Like silicones and hair, I think is such a good example. Some people just don't like silicones in their hair because they don't like the texture, because they don't like, you know, what it does to their curls. That's valid. That doesn't mean silicones are dangerous. It just means some people choose not to use them. That's one of those ingredients is a perfect example of it feels like it makes sense. It feels like silicone. Silicone is slippery. It could clog up my pore. My hair won't grow. Like that is, that, by the way, that's not true, everybody. That literally is not true. That's not how it works. But you could see how easy it was to visualize that and make it make sense with a little high school science education like graph in your book. When silicones are like very, they don't engage with your body that much. They kind of just sit there. The point of them is to sit there. They're yeah. a big molecule. You right. know, so, They're supposed to sit on your hair. So if you don't like it because you don't like the feel of your hair, fine. But if you think it's making your hair fall out. I had a hairstylist once and he was telling me, he's like, you know, we didn't start using silicones in hair care until the the 90s. When did all the hair thinning start happening? When do we see an increase in hair thinning? The 90s. I was like, dude, correlation versus causation. A lot of other SOP stuff happened in the 1990s, like in our (laughs) environment, besides using silicones in hair care. 
And we started studying these things. Like who knows what was happening before that if there wasn't research out there to show you. So yeah, like or that Snackwell's example, like the fat-free foods, like we all thought sure. we wanted fat-free foods in the 90s until we realized they probably were making us fatter because, you know, our body, simple sugars, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So totally. that's the thing I try. And that's when, when do you enter the discussion? You have to wait. So the science sort of pans out and we see what the real answer is and then tiptoe in and like do your homework, but that's what you have journalists for. And that's what you have like thought leaders for that you trust. Yeah. So I want to ask you, at what point do you personally form an opinion on something? Because, you know, you're a journalist. I, I think there is some some standard with journalists that we that we feel that we need to remove our opinion from it or or at least try to be as unbiased as possible. And you even said earlier today that like you are somebody who just naturally tends to see other people's sides and stuff in arguments. Like you can like relate to how people are, you know, the argument that they come from as long as it's a well-reasoned argument. But, you know, at what point do you personally make an opinion that you hold for yourself? It's funny because I was going to say never. I'm always looking for new information. And that's true. However, there I go saying triclosan is definitely bad. And I would not put talc on my genitals. Talc's not bad, but there might be asbestos in it. And that is definitely like a place on my body that I would not want. You know, there's some science there. So like I'm thinking about what was the point where with those two particular I decided, okay, I'm not putting talc there and I'm not using triclosan. And those are very few, by the way. Like I am very open to a lot of things because I also feel like I go out in the world, besides what I put on my body, I just walk through a plume of exhaust from an MTA bus. Like I am exposed to microplastics in water that I have no control over. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I think the thing for me is enough academic research followed by like some real world examples and then running it by a couple experts I trust. And then maybe I'll form an opinion. However, once I have the opinion, I will always in a way be searching to prove myself wrong to make sure like, you know, like sort of like testing, like stress testing my opinion. Do I still yeah. think talc is bad on your general cells? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. You know, like <laughs> just to make sure that I never get so set in my ways, because I think with all sorts of discourses in this country, that's what happens. You get set in your ways. You you mm. listen to people who agree with you. It turns into an echo chamber. Things get polarized. And now we're not now we're not like curious and doing science and moving humanity ahead because we all just are so stuck in our opinions. Like it's OK to be wrong. The smart people always admit when they're wrong. It's the dumb people that don't admit when they're wrong. It's true. It's 1000% true. But that goes really well into the next thing I want to talk to you about is sometimes it feels like the beauty industry can be quite polarizing. And I do, you know, I think the nuance is entering the chat back again. I think there are a lot of people who are trying to be like, hey, guys, there's a lot of gray area here. But for the last several years, it does feel polarizing in, in some ways. You know, you mm-hmm. are either on the team of natural or you're on the team of all I want is synthetic. Don't touch me with any like aloe vera. Yeah. And it's, I just don't, you know, I think you and I can both come to the table with the understanding that that's not really how like any beauty consumer actually uses products. You know, most people kind of come to this place of, you know, they use a wide variety of things. Mm-hmm. So you have been in the beauty industry for a while. You have seen this shift kind of start happening. Why do you think that 
it has become to this point where it does feel a little polarizing. Well, because well, money, first of all, and engagement and clicks. Because if you yeah. just put out something that we all agree is good for us and you make it as an opinion on a video, no one's going to – everybody's going to be like, okay, true, scroll, next. But the minute you give it an angle of a hot take or this versus that, then people can weigh in. It's the same way when you see like a survey or poll. Like people are going to engage with it more than just reading an article because they want to give their opinion. So I think – our system of media right now has rewarded those who take an extreme view. And sometimes I think they know they're doing it in order to get engagement, but sometimes I think they don't realize they're doing it, but maybe deep down they noticed, oh, when I am a little bit more controversial on my videos, more people comment and then they get even more controversial. And I think in politics that happens too, where you move to the fringes and that's when you really see people follow you because it's like, A, hate follows because like, what is yeah. what are they going to say next? Or B, like, you just get in this echo chamber and agree with people who agree with you. So I feel like it's it has to do with the media landscape more than the beauty products themselves or the science, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, just a little anecdote. One time I was talking to somebody who ran a social media account and this social media account shall remain nameless, but it was a very like anti-clean social media account. And, mm. and I was just having a conversation with them because, you know, I like engaging with lots of viewpoints. And the person who ran the account literally said to me, they're like, oh, we don't actually believe all that stuff. We just know that it gets views. Yeah. I mean, I literally think I said, said that, that to me. I was like, oh, you just admitted that? <laughs> I mean, I think Wild. about the the daily papers like back in the day and muckrakers and all and yellow journalism. It's yeah. like a lot of people know what they're doing, but I don't think their audience always does. Yeah. And that, I don't know. I still have... I go into it with a lot of like karma is how I just operate. I'm like, just karma, put out good, get good back. Like I'm never going to do anything ethically ambiguous just for the sake of like engagement. It's journalism 101. And I think a lot of the people that we're getting our information from aren't journalists. They're either marketers, brands are always like, I want to educate, like beauty brands want to be educators, but that's fine, but they still have to sell products. So think about who the source is. If you're learning about, you know, carrier oils versus essential oils, like that's a simple thing, right? From a brand. Okay. Maybe they, a lot of what they're telling you is true, but look at the formulas that they have. Are they selling products with like carrier oils? You know what I mean? Like just look at the source of where your information is coming from to, before you make a decision on whether whether you agree with it or not. Yeah. When, I mean, to go on that point, when you are trying out products and you are engaging with a brand, obviously brands always have tons of marketing, et cetera, et cetera. You are somebody who is an expert at this. How do you suss out marketing versus substantial claims that somebody's actually making that you can believe in? I think over the years I've learned to read an ingredient label. So I I know that a lot of the good stuff can only be in the 1% and might be really low down on the ingredient list. That is a dumb way to look at an ingredient list. Don't just look at like, whatever's the top three is what it is. I think I read that article once and I was like, no. So I look <laughs> at the ingredient list, but then I also look at, then I don't even look at their marketing materials and I immediately go to Google Scholar and do like an academic search on whatever the claim or the topic is. And very, like, for example, I don't know if you're okay with this, but like collagen supplements. I just had a friend text me today about oral collagen supplements. I have tried to do this story multiple times where like trying to find like 
a good skin benefit. They hydrate a little bit. They're definitely like going to make you healthier as a holistic sense. Like it, it's not a bad thing to have protein, but like to, eating collagen doesn't automatically put collagen in your skin. Sure. And I still haven't been able to get on board with it. But if you feel something different, well, you tell me. <laughs> I think that I, listen, I think there are a lot of bad players in the supplement space. That's for sure. I think there are a lot of bad players in the beauty space too. But specifically with supplements, I think there are a lot of bad players. And I think there are a lot of people who do say exactly what you just said, that, you know, you will take this collagen supplement and then all of a sudden you like magically the next day have more collagen in your face. Like that's basically how they imply that it works. And I think there are downstream effects that are beneficial of a lot of these supplements. And I think there's a difference in marketing between the downstream effects of like holistic minded products versus and nutrition and taking your care of yourself in that way versus saying like if you take x y will happen immediately after you know and i think there are ways to talk about this stuff that does touch on that nuance right and what i ultimately say by the way is if someone's taking a college supplement and they say does it work and i'll ask them do you think it's working And if they say yes, then freaking take your supplement. There's so much research showing people who take supplements actually like are triggered to eat healthier because they're taking a supplement. Or maybe it just makes you feel good because it's like a little moment in the beginning of the day where you sit down with like your smoothie that you made and you feel good about yourself and the packaging makes you happy. There are so many other benefits besides the just – with beauty in general, I feel this way. Besides – literally coming down to like, did it make the effect and the claim that it said it would? Like, that's not why we put this stuff on our faces always. It's not why I even do it. And I know, like I will put on a face oil that I'm like, I don't care. It smells good. And I liked massaging it in. End of story. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Or this cool lady was wearing it and I think she's cool. So I'm going to wear it too. And I have no problem admitting that because, you know, like you said, it's not like everybody has to be doing a freaking college dissertation to make a decision on a product they're going to buy. No, none of this is that serious. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like at the end of the day, we did choose a beat that like we feel passionately passionately about, but it's not that serious. As long as we're not doing harm. And there are every now and then these, these, these trends that could be medically harmful that, you know, you worry about or somebody who's just purely never going to wear sunscreen and wants to get more sun because they want more vitamin D and ends up with like, you know, melanoma. Like I don't, these are rare cases, but so yes, to a point, like I said, I'm just finding the nuance in the thing that you just said, obviously. (laughs) Couldn't just let you say that and have your opinion. I was like, caveat. (laughs) But Jen, that's why I like you. That's why I'm um, here. <laughs> that's why you're here. Well, listen, I I, I have to ask follow-ups. What are more trends that you have seen that make you go, oh my God, we have to stop this trend immediately? Or like that is potentially harmful? Potentially harmful, I do think the the, the natural sunscreens one, I I get scared to even say this, but there are some oils with very few research that has shown SPF four or six when you put this oil on your skin. That has been shown. Literally, you could probably put like water with sediment or clay in it on your skin and get some SPF value out of it. It's a physical blocker on some. But if you're trying to tell people like they don't 
need a to stay out of the sun or sunblock or sunscreen because they're putting on a natural oil. It's just I don't think going to offer you enough protection if you are prone to skin cancers, if you have the skin type yeah. that is prone to skin cancer. I think any sort of trend that it's exclusionary, exclusionary on a cultural or soci- social so societal, excuse me, basis is like a no-no. If it's only for one group of people, that worries me too. So you could think okay. about like the cosmetic trends or hair or beauty trends that like, you know, then they leave people out and I don't feel good about that either. But purely dangerous, what else are people doing? I go on TikTok and I'll tell you like, you know, <laughs> drink it. What was the green drink everybody was drinking? And I was like, what? Oh, chlorophyll or something? I guess that, that might not be dangerous. But then again, they're not regulated. Sure. You, even the brands themselves don't sometimes know what their raw material suppliers are working with. And that was the issue going back to talc, for example, the testing for asbestos in the talc is really all over the place. So a brand doesn't, I often say they don't knowingly make a product that's mm. going to hurt people. Usually one hopes, but yes. like they don't always know. So yeah, I didn't really answer well, your question. I think because- that's actually a really interesting point and something to speak on a little bit more is this idea that because the regulatory, because the regulation in a lot of consumer products and personal care and supplements, et cetera, that there is not a ton of regulation in force and there is a lot of gray area and there is, there is no like universal standard for testing and protocols, et cetera, et cetera. It does leave room for brands to unknowingly, you know, make mistakes, et cetera, whatever it is. To touch on that a little bit more, you know, how can consumers identify what is a brand that they can trust versus like what's something that might be risky? You know, like what are some red flags that you look for? I don't want to say this, but I think a safer way, and I don't do this, it's my job not to do this, would be to wait it out a little bit. For example, some of the -the over-the-counter lash growth enhancers that are cosmetics use these analogs of a drug that, you know, is in Latisse and can make your lashes grow. And it is not considered a drug by the FDA, full stop. However... It could have been very well 20 years ago, some drug company went and did all the clinicals, phase one, two, three, got FDO. It could have been a drug. It just happened to be that it's not at this point and it's still safe to put in over-the-counter cosmetics. And I don't think it's going to harm you, but if enough people start using something, you'll start to see if there's a couple users that are having an issue. And lately with like TikTok and everything, they will be vocal about it. So I feel like if a new trend comes out and you are one of these people that is a little wary, wait it out and see, because if enough people, I mean, don't let use Americans as your test case of like subjects sure. in a, but kind of in a way we're in this huge, this huge science experiment. Every time a new yeah. product comes out, let's have a thousands of people use it and you're bound to see what the issues are. There's this great thing. I forget what the psychological concept is called, but it was like back in the early 1900s, they would like take a bowl to market and ask people to guess the weight of this bowl. And so the guesses would be all over the part. I think it's 300 pounds. I think it's like 200 pounds, 800 pounds. But weirdly, the larger the group got, by the end, if you averaged, you know, 2,000 people guessing the weight of the bull, it was always within like 0.001 pounds of what the actual weight of it was. Wow. There's something about group 
a bigger group doing things that helps you see the problems and or the good things. I, these, that concept doesn't quite equate, but I, I, you can see why I'm bringing it up yeah. because it's like okay. the more people that do something, like the more you'll be able to figure out for yourself if it's right for you. I mean, that sounds like a lot of group thinking. Let's think back in history of all the things like, well, everybody <laughs> else was doing it. I should do it too. It doesn't work. But with a beauty product, you can yeah. sort of see like, maybe I don't need to be the early adopter. Maybe I let... Sure other people and see how that pans out, especially if you have an immune issue or a skin condition like psoriasis. A thyroid condition. Yeah. And and you know who you are. Like if you're the kind of, then you should not be the experimenter, you know? Yeah. But if you have rhinoceros skin, you want to go for it. You use that serum and I'll see what it does to you. And then we'll. Okay. So this kind of brings up something that I had a plan to talk to you about, but it does touch on what you just asked, how the EU and the US approaches putting things to market. We, it it gets a little complicated and there's a ton of nuance when you actually look at how the EU and how the FDA approaches banning ingredients and et cetera. Mm. You know, often you hear that like there are 2000 chemicals banned in the EU and like some of them are like arsenic and it's like, well, yeah, technically that's banned in the States too, you know? So there's, there's some gray area nuance in how we approach this conversation. However, the EU does tend to require, you know, more substantial proof of safety. Uh, You know, they tend to ban more ingredients more readily. The, the, FDA kind of keeps things hands off. I think there is room for middle ground here, and I'm not quite sure how we build a more regulated beauty industry, especially in the States. But like, do you have thoughts on how we should be approaching, you know, how how this is regulated and how ingredients, you know, are put on the market. Well, I was going to say that I don't necessarily think there needs to be more pre-market regulation from the FDA. And I'm probably going to, you know, five years from now, walk back on this opinion. But for now, I would like if they had more money to look at recalls, to look at consumer complaints, because that's how it's supposed to work. You bring something to market and we're going to weed out the bad players because the minute they bring it to market and there's issues from customers, it's going to be pulled. That was how it was meant to work. But the, the agency has no money to actually be mm-hmm, mm-hmm. following up on all of the claims that people make or retesting the things that, you know, it's very rare that you get, I, I get the press releases from like when a product has been recalled or there's like, I guess product recalls would be the best way to look at it. Yeah. They're very rare for how much you hear of problems on the market. So if that sure. agency had a bigger budget, I mean, it's always comes down to money, like they would be able to be more proactively stopping the sale of products that could be problematic after yeah. they're sold. If they had to go through as much testing to get to the market, we wouldn't have innovation. Like sound like a sure. pure, you know, consumerist and capitalist when I say that, but that kind of is how it works. Yeah. Like and and there's a benefit I, to that. Yeah. And I I mean I see the innovation point absolutely. And I do think that there is a ton of value in having a market that pushes towards innovation that is able to try new things, etc. Um, but I do, you know, well, I was just thinking of example of sunscreen too. Like the other thing is like, which ingredients are considered over the counter drugs here in the United States, because it works against us in some ways in that the sunscreen ingredients, I think we only have like what, 11 or 16, is it now? I don't remember that are approved because they're over-the-counter drugs. Whereas in Australia and the EU and Asia, they have way more. What does that mean? They're able to make sunscreens that are much better for people with dark skin tones. 
So here they are more regulating and yet they have better sunscreen innovation. So it's not as simple as like less regulation equals more innovation. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So to touch on social media, once again, how do you personally approach how you talk to people on social media? And I want to ask you this as a journalist, because I do think, you know, you probably hold yourself to a higher standard than just like getting on, you know, whatever platform and just like chatting away. And I know that there's probably a lot of beauty influencers who don't necessarily have the same education or the same, you know, journalistic integrity, et cetera. So like, I want to ask you as a journalist who does have a social media following, how do you approach talking to people? I would say that is ancillary, my social media following, because like, I don't really engage that much on the short form social media like Twitter and videos online, because that's why I chose to go into podcasting because I could have a fuller conversation where I have a week to research something before I talk about it. And if someone wants to comment, they have to then engage with me directly by emailing me about it. There's no like comment section on a podcast. Like sure, I'll post a little video saying here's the episode, but most people it weeds out people who just want to have a hot take and like get fired Mm. up because that form of the medium is more nuanced in general. So on social media, like I also, I don't really want to do a hot take video and I see a lot of smart people who do them and I appreciate them entering the fray, but like I also mentally health, like my mental health That much engagement online feels unhealthy to me, whether it's because I'm commenting and it's fiery or just the fact of more screen time. Like I already spend a lot of my day because of my job on a screen and it, and I personally, it doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's a valid point in and of itself. (laughs) (laughs) You're allowed to feel good, Jen. (laughs) Thank you. But also for people who are looking like they're like, oh, social media, I was like, so turn it off. Like you can actually have a life without being completely plugged into your computer all the time. I've seen it. Yeah. It does work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So what trends are you excited about that are coming up? Trends that I'm excited. I'm so curious to see about, there's all of this science right now. This is a problem, but it's getting patented up about gray hair prevention. And mm. I w- I wish all these companies would get together because I feel like L'Oreal's working on it. It's one angle. And like, you know, this yeah. brand's working on this angle. And I have a feeling they're all very close to like, Easy thing that helps to prevent, you know, graying hair. And if they all just got together and talked about it, we'd have a product that works. But I think that would be very interesting for a lot of people. I personally have like gone the route of letting my gray hair come in in some cases, but like I think that that could be interesting. And as far as like trends, girl, I don't even know what the trends. Everything's a trend now. They just give it a new name. They just give it a new name. Everything has to be labeled now. It's It's so funny. This is how I decide what's actually new. I'm like, have I seen this before with a different name? Then this is not (laughs) a new trend. I have been excited to see what's been happening with CBD as like more science comes out about, you know, what it can do for different things. So I think where do you fall in the camp of CBD then? Uh, I only use it topical for like a joint help situation. Like I have a knee and a CBD cream really helps with my wonky knee. I know it works deep down levels, some of the CBDs topically, but I'm still like of that, like, let me wait and see how it works. You know what I mean? It's a little bit wild west, but that is an ingredient that isn't just like, oh, I added in another essential oil that was pretty or, you know, 
I went and found, you know, this group of people that uses this hair oil and I'm going to make it fermented rice water. Oh, fermented rice water. It's the next big thing. I'm like, they've been using that for thousands of years, you know? So, but yeah, I, I do think there's some science there and we're just starting to understand what CBD can do, CBD can do topically for skin. Okay. Well, the last thing I always ask my guests about is all about themselves. So I want to get into the section that's all about you, Jen. I I didn't ask you this earlier, but I think it's an appropriate thing to ask now. What is your beauty philosophy? Oh, I am... I like back load so I can do less every day or a high load. I don't know. I am all about injectables, good health, and exercise so that I don't have to do a lot of stuff day to day. If you looked at my day to day, the products I yeah. use, it's very pared down. But don't don't let me confuse you that that means I'm not doing stuff. Like I am all about fillers, talks, getting outdoor, breathing fresh air, going hiking, eating a ton of vegetables. But that way, then I don't have to worry because I look better because of all that stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So what can I ask? What you do for treatments then? I need oh, to know. all of them. Just you, I will try it all, but I've been seeing, and this is a hot tip, see the same dermatologist as you age. Don't doctor shop. And my co-host Jess Matlin says, you don't go to the dentist and ask them to drill here. You find a dentist (laughs) you trust and let them look at your total oral health. And when you need help, you let them tell you what you need, right? Like you don't go in asking for something. And I think that's how you should approach injectables. So when I started seeing her, I started getting filler when I was 35, I believe, but I can't be sure. She has used over the years, like the past eight years, Juvederm, Restylane, and Voluma has been put in my face in some place but all over because each time it's like, I don't come in and say Mm -hmm. whatever. I just say, keep me looking like myself. And the toxins, I've tried Xeomin, Botox, Dysport. I've tried them all at this point. Not all at once though. Like over the course of 15 years, I've been trying these. And honestly, I don't see a difference between any the toxins. They all kind of do the same thing. So yeah. And then Fraxel's great. I love, I love a laser for not just for the retexturizing, but for the collagen, like Fraxel sneaks up on you, yeah. get it done, then you heal and you're like, I look great. But then like four weeks later, you're like what's happening? And I always forget that I've gotten it. I'm like, what product did I use that all of a sudden I'm looking yeah. better? And then I'm like, oh, like- right. Like the collagen boost is kicking in. Like the, the after effect, these are the kind of treatments that like keep on giving more so yeah. than like a facial. Oh, acupuncture. Sure. I love acupuncture too. Do not even get yeah. me started. So, I mean, I... Uh, How much time do you have, Alex? No, I'm just kidding. All the time in the world for you. I am probably... I'm, I'm dabbling with the idea of getting my first Fraxel. I haven't gone the injectable routes yet. It will come one day, I am sure. We just haven't started down that line yet. But I'm thinking I really want to do a Fraxel. Yeah. If you when have, did you start doing Fraxel? I only got, I got it before I got married and it, it's, if you have melasma tendencies, I would say be careful because it can okay. trigger, you know, those kind of issues and skin tone wise, depending on your skin tone, see a doctor who's really yeah. practiced in it. Cause I get very nervous about these like drive-through laser facials that like these machines are so powerful and it is not as simple as they just turn it on and blah, blah, blah. Like they are targeted wavelengths at a certain depth. Like you want somebody who understands the physics of it all to be giving you a laser treatment. It's just one of those things when people are in general, like, I don't know, I just feel blah or I don't look great. 
I don't I have yet to see a person other than someone with melasma or deep skin tone that might have issues with it, not like their self post fraxel. And by the way, it's one of those treatments that a lot of people need two to three, like spaced out, like do it all before you come to me yeah. and say it didn't do anything. Cause there's no way someone will get two to three fraxels spaced two months apart and not look better in six months. It's just, it's just impossible in my mind. So. Well, all right. You sold it to me. I have been <laughs> dabbling with it for so long. I think what's like only keeping me away is the downtime and the pain. I just feel like I, I can't Which figure out when to fit it in my schedule. Things like I have a very high pain threshold, but you usually get numbed. Most of yeah. the doctors do that. And I would say a week, you look like you were ski. You're a skier. Like, you know that windburn you get? Sure. That like, there's nothing really that fixes it. It's like that red. Yeah. It's not a sunburn because yeah. it's textured. Yeah. That is what yeah. it's like for a week. Okay. So okay. find a week All that right. you can deal with that. But again, our job is being a beauty editor journalist. Then you just tell people what happened. Just like, I got fractal. <laughs> like, you end up on a Zoom with, like, executives at your company, and nobody's going to question it because it's your job to try these sure. things, to write about them and talk about them. So you are correct. Let's talk about your day-to-day. What do you – I know you said you keep it minimal, but what, what are you using right now that you like? I'm always – cleansers, I think, are really fun to play with because, like, you can't screw it up that much. So I'm always trying new – cleansers. I just got Angela Caglia's Neroli. I love an oil cleanser. I just yeah. feel like if if I had to, I could wash my face with olive oil. I just love the way they leave my skin. And then I don't use a retinoid or an antioxidant serum, vitamin C. I'm really sensitive to retinoids, but I like an epidermal growth factor, which by the way, okay. if we're going to do a broad sense of clean, is probably the least clean ingredient since way back in the day, you know, the origins yeah. of some of the epidermal growth factors. Mine in particular was a human origin, whereas there's like biomimetic natural ones, but I, I don't know. I just don't think they work as well. So I use Skin Medica's TNS serum. Okay. I've used that for years. And then sunscreen. Oh, I love all the new sunscreen. How much better did sunscreen get in the last two to three years? It is getting so much better. Thank God. Some I, of them were rough for really long. <laughs> I mean, no matter what texture you like, I feel like you can find one now. And if you, um, that's not saying it's cheap. That's the other thing. I feel like it's cost sure. prohibitive. The really good ones tend to be very expensive, but I think prices will, I know like inflation, but sure. I think prices you are going to come get well. down. Of course, like a 1.7 ounces for like $50, the amount of sunscreen you're supposed to use, that's going to be gone in like two weeks. What? Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, I've been using like Naked Sundays. Love the Australian brands. Ultraviolet. It's not here in the US yet, but it's a really good one. Yeah. Okay. I'm always doing sunscreen. And then I know you mentioned you loved working out and getting outside, but I do want to ask a little bit more about your well-being routine. Just, it's all connected somehow. So is, I take a very like evolutionary biology approach, which is like, what is not in the way of like CrossFit though. I have tried that where like, I'm going to go paleo and back to the way our like foremothers did it. But in that, like what is a human created to do? Not sit in front of a screen. Like my Mm -hmm. exercise is a lot of hiking, like a lot of intensive hiking and walking. And I'll try a class, try, try anything once, twice if you like it. But like, I don't feel good when I've just spent 45 minutes in a dark studio. Like I'll like it, but like I need the fresh air. I need to be smelling the smells of a forest. And that's like what makes me feel really healthy. So that's the, my exercise routine. And then health wise, I'm a like weekday vegetarian, if you will. Like I just, not only because, not only for ethical and like eco reasons, more so because it forces me, if you're not eating, you know, animal proteins, you have to fill that in with vegetables and fruits and like good carbs. Otherwise you're just going to be hungry all the time. So I think 
And, but you know, I still like to eat those things. So I limit them to the weekends. Not, it's not a hard and fast rule, but I'd say five days out of the week, I'm eating vegetarian most of the day. Jen, this was so good to to catch (laughs) up. I love your perspective on everything. I'm so, so glad you came on and shared how you approach all this stuff because I do think it's so, so important that, you know, we, we learn to have a, a more nuanced approach to all these conversations because, you know, nothing is black and white. And I, we I love how you be tackle clean things. beauty schooled. Like, <laughs> we I, all need to be fat mind, mascara. And mind, <laughs> mind body greened. I love it. It was great talking to you too. Well, Thank you. Thank you so, so much. I'll talk to you soon. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want more beauty content, you can find it at mindbodygreen.com or any of our social channels. And finally, if you liked this podcast, don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.